John 19, verse 31 to 42. And if you need a Bible, please raise your hand or ushers will bring you one. And if you don't have one at home, we, we welcome you to take this home with you and we encourage you to read it, uh, make it yours. Verse 31. Therefore, because it was the preparation day that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other two uh, who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may believe. For these things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. Lord, we thank you for your word today, and thank you for the blessing of coming together in fellowship and worship. And in your word, Lord, we pray that today by it, you would speak to us and draw us near to you, Lord. We pray that in our lives, Lord, not just today, but each day, you would make all things new, that it wouldn't be just another year of making promises to ourselves or to those around us, but Lord, it would be a year of drawing near to you, being filled with your Holy Spirit, and seeing you work in us to make all things new. Lord, we pray for those who are sick and hurting. We pray for our brother Greg, Lord. We continue to ask that you would heal him. Lord, truly it would Take a miracle, and we trust in you. We believe in you, that you are able, and we ask that you would please touch him. Lord, we pray for our brother Rich Harder. We pray that you would touch him, God. Also, just perform a miracle in him, Lord. Heal him. And Lord, strengthen the family of those who are affected by the the hurt, by the sickness, Lord. Strengthen their faith, draw them near to you. 
Lord, we look to you, and we know that you're able to do exceedingly and abundantly beyond all we can ask or even imagine. So, Lord, would you do the unimaginable? We look to you. Bless us and speak to us today. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You may be seated. Good morning again and Happy New Year. Truly, it is a great gift that his mercies are new every morning. I, I just, in, in every area, I think of his mercies being new, and I'm so grateful. You know, maybe one night you go to bed and you yell at the kids or something, and the next morning you wake up and you realize, thank the Lord, his mercies are new. My kids are still here and I still love them. They still love me. And uh, there's so many things that the Lord just gives us new every morning. And, and I'm just reminded of that in, the, you know, in, in this new year, that his mercy is new. And it's not just, hey, we've got our mercy fill uh, that's gonna, you know, it's gonna carry us for the rest of the year now, and that's that's kind of how we treat the new year. Oftentimes, is that um, we're gonna make a resolution, a, a promise of some sort that we don't intend to keep, um, or we we think that we intend this time, and yet, you know, four days go by and it doesn't last. Um, but really, truly asking God to move in our hearts, let that be our prayer that we would draw closer to him because that's when we're gonna see things change. That's when we're gonna fulfill uh, the resolutions, so to speak, is when it is Christ in us, the hope of glory. Uh, when we are being transformed into the image of Christ. So what do we need our New Year's resolution to be, church? More of Jesus. That's what we need. More of Jesus and less of us and we will see great change take place. And maybe you're sitting here thinking like, I'm good. I don't need a New Year's resolution. Stop lying to yourself. We have not arrived. We have not been perfected, but we press on. Amen? Amen. So just by way of introduction and a happy New Year this morning, but if you would turn uh, in your Bibles to John 19, as we study today, we continue our study in the Gospel of John, of course, uh, as we are wrapping up chapter 19 today, we go back a couple weeks to just remind ourselves of where we left off with uh, Jesus on the cross and the final statements that Jesus made on the cross, and that final statement being, to telestai, it is finished. And, and we talked about how when Jesus said, it is finished, he proclaimed victory over death, over sin. It, it is finished is a term of victory. It's not a term to just say, I'm done. It is a victorious statement. It is a statement that would often be used by merchants to say, the debt is paid in full. And so here is Jesus hanging on the cross saying, it is finished, the, death is paid, uh, the debt is paid in full, all the work of salvation is complete. And now we pick up <clears throat> from there, after what Jesus has just spoken, right, he's declared victory over death, over sin, over everything, and now in verse 31, 
Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. The Jews, after Jesus, just said it is finished and demonstrated and declared victory over sin and death. He declared victory over, over the whole, everything, over the world, over, over the, the, the cross in this moment and everything that had been experienced, everything that he was experiencing. It is finished. The debt is paid. And, and in that, Jesus is fulfilling the law and the prophets. He's fulfilling this great work of salvation and the Jews. And when we speak of the Jews, we've studied this since the beginning of John, uh, in, in, throughout the Gospel of John, when we say the Jews, we're talking about the religious rulers, the religious leaders, the, the chief priests, the Pharisees. That's who we are referring to. And so the Jews... As it says here, they have a problem. And the problem is they are still caught up in ceremonial law after Jesus just claimed victory over ceremonial law. He just claimed victory over it. Our salvation was paid for in that moment and they're still caught up in the Sabbath and the ceremonial law of the Sabbath. Now they didn't understand what was taking place. But this is the work that Jesus did, fulfilling the law. And here they are so concerned with it, not, would not allow their Sabbath to be defiled by the sight of these three men on a cross. The, the, it's just a sight not to be seen. They don't want to have anything to do with it. It's, it's gross. And, and customarily, they would leave the bodies up there as a display, as a declaration to say, look what happens when you come against the Roman government. And they put these criminals on display. That is the practice of crucifixion. And they would leave them there. And they would leave them there for days and days. To, and they would begin to decay. And the, the uh, birds of prey would come and begin to eat away at the carcasses. This is what would take place customarily. But the Jews were caught up in the ceremonial law. No, no, no. We can't have that. We can't have this sight on the Sabbath. We, and, and not only the Sabbath, this is the high day. This is a combination of the Sabbath and Passover at the same time. There's too many people around. There's too many people coming and going in and out of the city. And this is a site that is, remember we talked about last time, it is a, a, the place, the location is a common public place that many people would see coming and going from the city. And so here they're saying it's not, it's not acceptable according to ceremonial law. And after Jesus just declared victory, after Jesus just said it is finished, he fulfilled the law, and yet the religious system is so caught up in the law they cannot see Jesus. And that's a lot of what we see here is this blindness, and we've talked about it before in John's gospel, the, the blindness of the religious system, the blindness of the Pharisees, the chief priests. They were blind to see what was going on, and even here later on we see that, that they don't see Jesus for who he is. They don't see what Jesus has just done. They are still caught up in their religiosity. 
they missed it. It's such a sad moment. But then, so the, the, what they do then is they petition Pilate again, right? How many times have we seen their influence over Pilate? I mean, there's all the back and forth that has taken place. The, the, the unlawful, unfair, unjust trial of Jesus that they had their, their hand in the whole thing. And they were manipulating the whole situation. And now that manipulation continues. And so they petitioned Pilate again. And you might think at this point there was, it was enough already. Maybe Pilate, it, it, you would think perhaps he'd say, guys, I'm not listening to you anymore. But he doesn't, right? They, they don't hesitate to ask again. Ask again and again and again. How many requests have there already been and how many more requests are there going to be? They just keep coming at Pilate, which indicates to us there's a pattern of influence here that was going on long before Jesus being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. The influence was great, not just over, and we've talked about this before as well, the the Jewish rulers, the religious rulers had a great influence over the people, but it's not just over the people, it's over even the Roman government. And, and there's, we've talked about how there was great oppression from the Roman government, but how about the oppression that came from the religious rulers? And how the the religious rulers and the Roman government were actually working very much hand in hand along the way. A little bit of, you know, I scratch your back, you scratch mine. There's, There's no other explanation than that they were at times working together to make things happen for their own benefit. And the Jewish, uh, the religious rulers would not hesitate to ask because of a pattern of influence. They were given an inch and they take a mile. It continues and it continues and it continues. And the influence is, is great and it indicates that they were oppressive. They were just as oppressive over the Jewish people as perhaps the Roman government. And so the request is that they would break the legs. And this is uh, something that would happen at times to speed up the process of death. As, As someone would hang on the cross, they would be in that place where they would need to use their legs to push themselves up to take a breath. And so what they would do is they would come and they would break their legs so they would not have the ability to push themselves up to take a breath, and they would quickly suffocate from not being able to breathe as their arms and their rib cages are torn and they're stretched out and not able to breathe from the weight of their body that is pulling down. And so they would come, they would break the legs. That's the request here. They don't have a plan. They just have more requests. And they come to Pilate with this request to say, break the legs. Do what you guys do. Now, the, Roman, the Romans had, they were experts on crucifixion. They, they had taken it to, to new levels. They were the experts when it came to crucifixion. And now here's the Jews trying to dictate to them, hey, you know how you do that thing? 
You know how you break the legs? Go do that. You gotta speed up the process here. We're not gonna, we don't want this display here during Sabbath and the high day of Sabbath and Passover, the combination of these things. So go do the, the leg breaking that you would do. And, and here now, all of a sudden, the religious rulers become the experts on crucifixion. As they've tried already to become the experts on, on trial, on, on trying a prisoner and, and this presentation of Jesus in the, in the way that he was, he was presented to Pilate. But they make the request to break the legs. And then verse 32, the soldiers came and broke the legs. So clearly, Pilate, he gave in to their request once again. Under great influence. And so here the soldiers came and they break the legs of the two following the command of Pilate under the influence of the Jews. Going back to, again, the fact that Pilate lacked conviction because he already established within himself that Jesus was an innocent man. And he washed his hands of the blood of Jesus. But now here he is, still caught up in it. And why is he still caught up in it? Because he lacks conviction. If we lack conviction, we will constantly be caught up in the mess of the world and the manipulations of the world and the things that they try to pull strings all the time and make things happen. And if we lack conviction, we're gonna find ourselves right in the mix being indifferent ultimately and just allowing, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, break the legs. Yeah, do, yeah, go for it. Because we lack conviction. Don't find yourself in that place. Stand strong in the truth. And when it comes to Jesus, that's the truth that matters. There's no other truth. Jesus says, I am the truth. So apart from him, everything else is lacking. But Pilate, he lacked conviction. The soldiers under his command, under the influence of the Jews, they came and they broke the legs of the two. But then, verse 33, the soldiers came and broke the legs, verse 33, sorry. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. So they broke the other two legs, the legs of the two who were on either side of Jesus, but when they came to Jesus, it was a different story. Isn't it always that way? When it comes to Jesus, it's just a different scenario. It doesn't look like anything else looks. It doesn't look like the other the criminals on either side. It doesn't look like the this common, somewhat common occurrence of breaking the legs to speed up the death process. Because as we have established many times over, nobody took Jesus's life from him. He gave his life. And when he said it was finished, it was finished. Not when they came to break his legs, not when anybody else said, now it's finished. Jesus said it was finished. And and when we studied that, we looked at the final statement there, verse 30, and bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. He gave up his spirit. That's the moment. That's when he breathed his last. He gave up his spirit in surrender. 
He gave up his life in surrender. And now, as they come to break his legs, it's not going to be so. Now, we know it's not going to be so because, according to Scripture, there's going to be prophecy fulfilled here. So his legs could not be broken. They didn't know that. But they're just falling in line with the Scriptures. And we'll get further into that a little bit later. But they saw that he was already dead. And these are the experts on crucifixion. And being the experts on crucifixion, they would come, oh, let's break the legs so, they could, so they'll suffocate. And they come to Jesus, and being the experts, they know that we don't need to break his legs because it is finished. Because the work had already been done, and yet they don't even realize what's taking place. We get to see the whole story. We get to study the scriptures and recognize that fact that it is finished and Jesus already gave up his life. And there was nothing that anybody could do to speed up or to slow down that process. It was done. So they didn't break his legs and they would think they didn't break his legs because he was already dead but also because they're fulfilling prophecy without even knowing it. But verse 34, as we continue, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. So instead of breaking his legs to hurry his death, one of the soldiers pierced his side for evidence of his death, to verify his death. As they looked at him, and they said he was already dead, so now they pierced the side. Another practice that was common, to pierce the side, to have evidence of the death. And in that, they would be waiting to see what flowed. And oftentimes it would be water that flowed. But with Jesus, it was blood and water that flowed. And this likely indicates that Jesus died from a ruptured heart. The combination of blood and water is that there's this, this sack around the heart and that if his heart ruptured, then that both the blood and water would come pouring out. And so when they pierced his side, blood and water came out. And there's different people who would argue that this is when Jesus died, is from that thrust. And there's people who will argue anything they can when it comes to Jesus. But we know that Jesus gave up his spirit already. And we know that Jesus said, it is finished. And John thought this was significant to note, though, that there was blood and water that flowed. Representing, once again, that it is just different when it comes to Jesus. It, 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 when the soldiers, even it says they came, when they came to Jesus, when it comes to Jesus, it's different. And so here, when they thrust this, it's different. The blood and water flows, and there's a significance to that. John gives us this picture of the physical that Jesus had a real human body and he fully experienced death to its absolute fullest. And the amount of the, the, that blood and water poured out would also indicate the extreme suffering that somebody would have gone through. 
prior to their death even. The physical suffering was so extreme. But then there's the spiritual. Blood that poured from Jesus, from his hands, from his feet, from his head, from his side. Blood representing our justification, taking care of our guilt. Because without the outpouring of blood, there is no remission of sin. And water representing our sanctification, fully cleansing us from sin. And then verse 35, and he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. This is an eyewitness account and it's likely that John himself is the eyewitness since he's the writer and he was present at the crucifixion. And so he's, he's writing from a firsthand experience and he's validating the testimony to be true. Whether it was John who's the witness he's talking about or not, John was an eyewitness. And so he's able to say, it's true, I saw it. I saw with my own eyes the blood and water pour out. I saw with my own eyes Jesus hanging on the cross. I saw with my own eyes them breaking the legs of the other two and then not breaking the legs of Jesus because they saw that he was already dead. Being an eyewitness is validating a testimony to be true. And the purpose is here that you may believe. That we may believe. In this statement is a revelation of the purpose of John's writing, so that you may believe. And we have seen those, that statement so many times already in the Gospel of John, and we will see it again. The purpose of John's testimony is that we may believe. That anyone who is reading and experiencing this for themselves may believe. And the eyewitness brings the validation that it's true. That you would not only believe what he's saying is true, but that you would believe in Jesus. It's for our benefit. It makes clear John's intent. He validates the whole story. The whole story of Jesus is validated because of the eyewitness, because of the experience. And he later would write about that in 1 John chapter 1. He talks about that our eyes have seen, our, our hands have handled, we have experienced Jesus. And he's writing that from a personal, firsthand experience of experiencing, watching, living with, dwelling with Jesus. That validates things, doesn't it? Being with Jesus validates our testimony. Have you been with Jesus? Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Do you testify of who he is with 
your words and your actions and is it validated because the evidence is clear that you've been with Jesus because you're an eyewitness to your own life? And we've talked about this before, right? That, that there's power in a testimony. Nobody can argue your testimony with you. I'm saved by grace. I'm a different person because of Jesus Christ. Go ahead, try to argue it with me. People could try to argue, well, you know, creation versus evolution, or they try to argue the crucifixion and the resurrection, did it really take place? There's so much evidence that it actually did take place, and we don't have to get into that. What I can get into is that I am saved by grace through faith, and I believe in Jesus, and Jesus changed my life, and he could do the same for you. But you have to believe. And that's what John says. It's so that you may believe. He was there, an eyewitness, and he testifies of what he saw so that all who would read and experience the writing of John would believe. No other purpose. He doesn't say, he doesn't puff out his chest to say, I was there. I was the one faithful. I was, I was loyal to Jesus when nobody else was. No. He's saying, I testify because I want you to know Jesus. So that you might believe. His purpose is evangelistic. That others would believe. To bring salvation not just believing that what he's saying is true, but believing in Jesus. Let that be our purpose. And what John is doing is simply passing on truth. When we pass on truth, what's the purpose? I would say that there's often times that our purpose is for our own benefit, that we pass on truth. Let the purpose be for sanctification. Let the purpose be for salvation. That they might believe. Verse 36. And there's further validation here, right? In verse 36, for these things were done that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Further validation. It makes it clear. Not only is John an eyewitness, and there are eyewitnesses to the crucifixion of what took place, and he validates these things to be true, but there's further validation in that the scripture said it was going to happen this way, and it did. And so John is, a, is an eyewitness not only to these things happening the way that they happened, but he's an eyewitness to scripture being fulfilled. And the fulfillment of prophecy validates everything. The way that Jesus was born, the way that Jesus lived his life, the way that Jesus did ministry, the way that Jesus died, the way that we're going to get into, the way that Jesus was buried, the way that Jesus rose from the dead, it's all fulfillment of prophecy and it validates it all to be 100% true. The odds of eight prophecies coming true 
are as, you ready? It's as rare as if you took quarters and you stacked them two feet high all throughout the state of Texas. And you took one and you put a mark on it and you mixed it up in the whole state of Texas, two feet high of quarters. And the odds of eight prophecies coming true are the same odds as if you were to pull out that quarter. Guys, there's like four prophecies right here in the text today. I would, I would say it's true. I would say it's validated. And so here we get to see that for these things were done, that the scripture would be fulfilled. That's why. And we've said that many times already throughout just this section of the crucifixion of Jesus, of the trial of Jesus. It all happened according to the scripture. Fulfillment of prophecy validates everything. And John points out to us so many times himself the fulfillment of the scriptures. So now let's look at these statements. The following statement there, not one of his bones shall be broken. In Psalm 34, verse 20, it says he guards all his bones, not one of them is broken. Further, in Exodus chapter 12, verse 43 through 46, if you're taking note, it says, and the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it, but every man's servant who is bought for money, when you have circumcised him, then he may eat. A sojourner and a hired servant shall not eat it. In one house it shall be eaten. You shall not carry any of the flesh outside the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. Speaking of the sacrificial lamb of Passover. And Jesus now is presented on the cross as the sacrificial lamb of Passover, and not one bone of his body would be broken. If they were to come and break his legs and, and, and just think about what stopped them. They don't care about Jesus. They're, they come and they break the legs of these criminals and to, to them, that's all they are, three criminals. That's what the soldiers, that's what their picture is. They come, they break the legs of one, they break the legs of the other. They come to Jesus and they did not break his legs. Even if he had already been dead, why not break his legs? What do they care? Because the scripture says so. Because he will be the sacrificial lamb of Passover. He will fulfill the Passover. He will fulfill the law. He will fulfill the Sabbath in every single way. And so his legs were not broken. Further, it says then in verse 37, and again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. In Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, it says, and I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn, for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. 
Now, this is not so much speaking of a physical looking upon, but later the fulfillment that would come. This is the beginning of fulfillment because they're seeing, and some are beginning to understand who Jesus is. And there are, of course, John and and, uh, the mother of Jesus, Mary is there. there. There are some who believe, and they're looking upon him whom they pierced. And there's a physical looking upon, but a realization of who Jesus is that would come more throughout time. And it will happen, ultimately. John himself writes about it in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. He says, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so. Amen. Now we have that direct connection between Zechariah chapter 12 and Revelation chapter 1. And we see the in-between is Jesus on a cross and the beginning of that fulfillment, looking upon him whom they pierced, but then the seeing, there is the seeing and believing that takes place at the last day as Revelation talks about. They will see and they will mourn because they will understand Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, continuing on in uh, verse 38. After, these, after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury. These two men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, we'll call them the secret service disciples. (laughs) They were the secret disciples Joseph of Arimathea, we we know, it says that he was a follower of Jesus. And he came in secret to Pilate. And Nicodemus, we studied back in John chapter 3, he came to Jesus at night. Both these men were Pharisees. They were a part of the, the inner circle of the religious system. Yet, they were followers of Jesus. And Joseph of Arimathea, he comes in secret because of fear of the religious system, the religious rulers, of which he was in the inner circle. He couldn't quite get out, but God set this up. You see, there was no plan for the body of Jesus. The, the Jews just said, just break the legs, get them off the cross, get that out of here. We don't want to see that. It's Sabbath, it's Passover, let's end this now. There was no plan beyond that. They didn't care about the body of Jesus, and that was so against their Jewish custom, but they didn't care. There was no plan for it, yet God had a plan for it. And God set up this plan even beforehand with these two men who were secret disciples. These two men who were followers of Jesus. And so Joseph of Arimathea comes and he asks Pilate in secret, 
because of fear of the Jews for the body of Jesus. As it was, as we said before, customary to leave the bodies to, be, to rot and be eaten by prey. But now because of the influence of the Jews, that's not happening, and yet they didn't have a plan. God's plan. God raised up these two men within the religious circles for such a time as this. God raises people up. God puts people in the positions they need to be in at various times for a specific purpose. To fulfill his perfect plan, and that's what we get to see. These two men, they were followers of Jesus, put in that place, raised up for this moment. In the Jewish culture, there was always such great care and attention given to a burial, but not by the religious rulers here. As I said, they didn't care about that here and now. So God uses these men to influence, uh, these men of influence who are followers and they took the body. This is a difficult job. As I said, there's much care and attention given to a burial in the Jewish culture and so think of the physical work that had to take place but the emotional work that had to take place and the fact that they felt I'm sure, as though they had to hide their emotions at the same time out of fear of the Jews. They were so fearful, they came, Joseph of Arimathea came to Pilate in secret to get permission to take the body of Jesus, which means then he would probably need to continue somehow in secret, whether he hired some people because he was a wealthy man or whether he was involved himself. This is no small thing. But the process of what took place here, the emotional, the physical, it was overwhelming. And the preparation of the body was quite a drawn out process as well. And now they're up against the Sabbath. And so this needs to happen quickly. Again, there's quite a lot of work that goes into this. But they, repa- they prepared the body of Jesus and what would take place, they would need to, part of the preparation was, would be to remove all foreign objects from the body. Remember all the stone and the, the metal, the glass, perhaps that had ripped apart his flesh and had been embedded into his flesh, had to all be removed. The splinters from the cross the crown of thorns from his head. Then they would have to clean the body. I'm sure cut to heart every step of the way. And then taking, wrapping the body with these spices and the aloes that Nicodemus had brought and then with linen cloths. Again, fulfilling scripture even through the burial. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9, it says, And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And here's the wealthy men, Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, fulfilling the scriptures. The burial of Jesus is very important. Sometimes we just brush right over it. We don't realize how specific the plan was that God had set in place in using these two men. 
the rich, the wealthy men to fulfill the scripture of Isaiah chapter 53. And it's so important that it's part of the gospel declared by Paul in, first, to the, in his letter to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses one to four, Paul says this. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed it in vain, for I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, and here's the gospel that Paul presents, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Paul, in this gospel presentation of, of verifying the gospel to the Corinthian church that was having all sorts of issues, he needed to bring them back to focus and say, hey, the, let's be reminded of the gospel. And he includes the burial of Christ according to the scriptures, really even in reference to imagine what John is say, talking about here, inspired by the Holy Spirit. According to the scriptures, it all happened according to the scriptures and the burial of Jesus is, very, is a very important part of the gospel presentation that Paul delivers to the Corinthian church. So it's important for us to remember that. He was buried and the burial was very specific and it was done according to the scriptures. All detail was attended to according to the scripture. And all of this, all things bring glory to Jesus. All that's taking place is, bring, is, is glorifying Jesus in his resurrection. Verse 41, now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. A garden, another garden, Reminded, as we talk about the garden, we can be reminded of the Garden of Eden. When Adam sinned, bringing the fall of mankind. And then, not so long ago, we studied in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus prayed and Jesus surrendered his life. And now here in the garden, where Jesus is buried, bringing redemption, Jesus, the second Adam, bringing redemption to mankind. But the tomb, being in a garden, and a tomb in that day, it was, now uh, Matthew tells us this tomb belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. So it was a, a wealthy man's tomb, and it was a new tomb, never been used before. What was common for the tombs in that day is uh, the, the common practice, it was, a tomb was rather large, maybe the size of this like center of the stage. Uh, and, and they would have in that tomb, they would have a stone that would roll in front of the opening. It would be in like a groove, so it could be moved, but it was a massive stone, had to be moved by several people. But in the tomb, they would lay the body and then they would give time for the body to decay. And then they would collect the bones and they would put the bones into a box, which is called an ossuary, and then they would put that box back into the tomb. And a tomb would be for a whole family. 
So a man like Joseph of Arimathea would purchase the tomb and it would be for his whole family over time and generations. But yet this tomb had not yet been used. There was no other bones. This is significant. You know, if he had been buried in an old tomb where there was other bones, the Jews might even try to claim, well, there was a prophet buried and there was this power that came from the bones that were in that tomb. And no, life is Christ. And the life that came forth out of the tomb was within Christ himself. That's it. And we see that focus even in the burial. There was no opportunity for any sort of other story to take place. I mean, it was so overwhelming what took place here. They, they put the Roman guard, and, and there's a whole Roman guard in front of it. They put the wax seal, and they, they put this whole seal this, that the tomb could not possibly be opened. They crossed all the T's, they dotted all the I's, and so did God in his plan there was no explanation for the resurrection of Christ other than the life that is Christ himself. And we'll get further into the resurrection next Sunday. And then closing with this, so there they laid Jesus. Because of the Jews' preparation day for the tomb was nearby. It was time. The tomb was nearby, they couldn't go very far, and they laid him there. And Joseph gave up that tomb for his family to Jesus. Never been used. Good news is it's only borrowed for a couple days. <laughs> but that's where Jesus lay. And next week we get to pick up with the, the greatest news in the history of the world and forever will be the greatest news in the history of the world. The tomb is somehow empty. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. We thank you for just the great hope that we have in your word and, and, and the confidence we can have in you as we look to your word. We thank you that the scriptures are fulfilled. We thank you that when we study the scriptures and we see this fulfillment of so many prophecies that we can be more confident in you. We can be more confident in the truth that Jesus died and was buried and rose on the third day according to the scripture. We thank you that your plan is perfect from the beginning and forever will be. It's in Jesus' name, amen.